the technology aspects or the digitalization uh, of of a lot of different industries is the pivot that that many companies and many industries are working towards and trying to evolve and and perhaps the the backdrop of a pandemic has accelerated that pivot so the technology sector is the largest owned sector in absolute terms you're about to hear my conversation with richard bodzi and greg mccullough we talk about high quality growth companies why sustainable cash flow is extremely important the narrow range of outcomes and we even get the recommendations on books podcasts and the best place to road trip i hope you enjoy this podcast is for informational purposes only information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement listeners should seek professional advice for their situation Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to have two guests with me today. Richard Botsey and Greg McCulloch work for Putnam. They are the managers of the McKinsey U.S. All-Cap Growth Class. Greg, Richard, welcome to the podcast. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, maybe I'll get started uh, with you, Richard. Uh, give me a sense of how you got involved in investing uh, how you ended up meeting Greg and uh, and your early career? Sure, um, you know uh, Greg and I have known each other since going to business school together about 15 years ago at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, and we actually managed um, some of the endowment money at, at Darden together, and both had an interest in investment management. I started my career out of college, uh, kind of evaluating funds and, and learning about them uh, and writing up reports and, and learning strategy classifications. And I kind of ended up thinking that I would like to be the one that was managing the money and investing on behalf of clients. And so I uh, went to business school and uh, started working as an analyst in central research covering industrials and TMT and, and worked my way up to assistant PM and then eventually to, to lead PM of growth opportunities or McKinsey all cap rather. Great. Um, so you, you, uh, you met Greg, uh, you were managing the endowment of, of uh, your university together. That's very interesting. Um, maybe, maybe Greg, I'll, I'll direct the next question to you. Uh, when you were managing that endowment, I, I guess we'll get into how you think about markets and how you approach it. But how much has it changed since those very early days where you're managing uh, the endowment together to where you are now? Uh, that's a that's a good question, Matt. I mean, obviously, the environment in which we are managing the the uh, portfolio has changed since then. But you know, I, I think a lot of the tenets of our philosophy in what we look for in businesses that we own. That was obviously kind of early days and early learnings for us at that point, 15 years ago. But, um, you know, I'd say that was kind of the foundation for a lot of what we do today. Uh, we were looking for high quality businesses, uh, businesses that are able to grow into, you know, into large uh, addressable markets and businesses that, that were really differentiated from you know, kind of the market in aggregate. 
And so I, you know, the philosophy and the approach, uh, I would say at a high level is actually really similar to how we ran it, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, we've obviously got a lot more experience under our belt. We've seen a lot sure. more kind of in the market environment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that really was the foundation for both of us, I think. Great. Maybe we'll elaborate then just on, on how you do uh, approach markets. You did say you look for high quality uh, businesses that are in large markets uh, that are differentiated. Um, maybe maybe expand on that a little bit. Uh, talk about the importance of growth to you. Obviously, uh, we, this is categorized as a growth uh, strategy. Um, so maybe expand on that. Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I can start and Richard can certainly jump in. Uh, when we think about growth, growth obviously is really important to us. And we think, you know, those are the types of businesses in end markets that we're drawn to. But when we think about growth, uh, we really, uh, we really aren't uh, trying to target the highest growth companies in the market. Instead, we're looking for companies that can grow above um, market growth through a cycle. And so, it's not really the absolute level of growth that we're seeking. It, it really is more the duration of growth um, that's that's most important to us. Yeah, and, and, and Greg alluded to it, but what we really are prioritizing is a, a narrow range of outcomes for the companies that we own. So uh, we don't typically invest in companies that have a, a lot of cyclicality to them. We like recurring revenue streams. We like long-term contracts. We like price escalators built in, lack of customer concentration, and, and typically oligopoly markets with only a few competitors. So we're seeking competitively advantaged companies um, across the cap range and, and trying to find companies that uh, can grow, as, as Greg alluded to, at a elevated rate across the cycle and for a multi-year period. So sometimes this draws us to what we call themes or, or multi-year growth drivers, but it's just a, uh, a situation where we're trying to find companies that have multiple years of, of growth and oftentimes their secular shifts or multi-year tailwinds that, that enable the growth. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And, and, and you, you mentioned themes as something that you uh, identify um, that will allow a company, I suppose, to have these above market growth rates for a uh, prolonged amount of time. Um, how important are themes in your investing and how do you incorporate it when you're um, building a portfolio and selecting companies? Richard, you want to take that? Sure, happy to. Um, you know, we start with the bottoms up analysis, the fundamental analysis of companies. Uh, but in order for companies to be able to grow at above market rates, a lot of times there need to be multi-year changes in behavior or uh, technology shifts that enable the multi-year growth. So for example, a couple themes that, that we invest behind are the personalization of medicine, the shift from 4G LTE to 5G technology, communications infrastructure, um, increased screen time, the humanization of pets. There, there are about a dozen different themes that we've identified and, and about two thirds of the names or so have um, thematic overlay applied to them. 
So do you identify the themes first and then look for companies that are able to exploit those themes? Or is it you start with um, your company by company analysis and you tend to find that uh, two thirds of the portfolio are grouped and have uh, these tailwinds that will allow them to grow faster? Uh, so you just explained the two ways that we come to our themes, Matt. Uh, it really okay. is uh, from either direction. I, I think maybe differentiated from a lot of thematic funds out there um, that maybe start with this kind of high level theme and then really try to kind of work down from a macro perspective to the stocks that might fit that theme. Um, we, we do approach it uh, from time to time from that perspective, but but really our analysis in our portfolio composition, our construction comes from really a bottom-up uh, analysis in the fundamental work. So sometimes we can come up with a theme first, we can look for uh, businesses that might prosper from that theme. Oftentimes it's the other way around though. We look, we look in the portfolio, we see commonalities and things that are working within the portfolio for a lot of businesses often actually in very different parts of the market. We have a theme in, in the portfolio called controlled distribution. Uh, and this is not too far from the concept of kind of a direct to consumer uh, type you know, shift in, in a business's channel or go to market. Um, but it's the idea that the, the more that you control that relationship with your end customer, the more that you control the distribution channel um, you know, the more control that you have over innovation, over inventory levels, you have real-time response on what's working and what's not working in your businesses, uh, and it allows a company to respond much quicker. And so if you look in the portfolio at the companies that fit into this con controlled distribution theme, we have companies like Lululemon and Nike that are embracing this direct contact, direct channel with their customers. But we also have businesses like Sherwin-Williams, which sells paint, uh, Texas Instruments, which sells semiconductors. All of these businesses have really pivoted uh, to, to, to go more direct to their end customer, to try to cut out the middleman, cut out that distribution layer. Uh, it certainly is additive to margins in the long term. But even more important than that, it gives them a really kind of organic relationship with lots of back and forth with their end customer. Interesting. Um, it's a, I've seen that applies to a very wide uh, group of companies, which is unintuitive, I guess, until you add that thematic view. Um, one of the taking a look at some of the themes and, and some of the things that you've, you've spoken about um, and, and taking a look at your portfolio. Uh, there is a, a significant amount of the portfolio and the themes that revolve around technology. Um, how important is technology and, and the development of, uh, of new technology in those firms uh, to your mandate? And how do you remain grounded, I guess, um, in, or, or tamper your uh, expectations or, or um, growth projections of these technology companies? It's a, it's a great question, Matt, and the, the technology aspects or the digitalization uh, of, of a lot of different industries is the pivot that, that many companies and many industries are working towards and trying to evolve, and, and perhaps the, the backdrop of a pandemic has accelerated 
that pivot. So the technology sector is the largest owned sector in absolute terms within the strategy. And um, whether it's healthcare or industrials, there's a, a digitalization and there's a, an additional software component. You know, Greg talked about getting to know your customer and how that applies to you know, paint company the same way it does to a semiconductor company. And um, uh, at, unless there's a, a truly disruptive technology company, which we come across uh, every now and again, we tend to avoid, you, you mentioned being grounded, we tend to avoid valuation extremes. So, um, you know, the software as a service company is trading at 20 to 25 times sales. It, not going to see us own a lot of those. Instead, it, it's more about um, double-digit growth. Again, maybe not the single fastest growing technology company, but uh, ones where we think the, the mode is durable and where uh, they have a, a long and extended runway for growth. Makes sense. Just to pick up on the, the theme, uh, you just mentioned that you avoid extreme valuations. How do you value uh, these companies? Uh, what, what do you look for when, when you're valuing them? And um, and then what can we expect as far as uh, what is extreme in your view or what is just too expensive? Uh, it's That's a good one, and I'll take that. Um, our valuation is really grounded in, in free cash flow growth. Uh, we're big believers in the power of compounding, you know, Similar to you know interest compounding over time, we think free cash flow compounding over time is one of the most powerful uh, things that you can you can find in the market. And so we look for businesses that, like Richard said, don't have to grow at blistering paces, uh, but grow steadily at a higher than market rate uh, and can do it for a long time. So you know when it comes back to valuation, you know it's really grounded in free cash flow growth. We think oftentimes with a lot of the names in our portfolio, and, we, and we've seen this over the last several years, you know, the mistake that the market makes oftentimes on valuation is that you, the, the sell side always builds in this kind of fade to normal and the growth algorithm of, of most businesses out there. And most businesses do fade, um, but there are a handful of businesses that, because, because they have uh, a product that's different than what's, what's available and because they're serving a really large market, we think you know, businesses that can grow at higher rates for longer than expected uh, can create real wealth in growth and intrinsic value. So we're always mindful of that. Uh, Richard, Richard mentioned we, we try to avoid valuation extremes, and that's true you know, in the in the very few instances where we do own what we'd consider to be kind of higher multiple businesses, I would say one, uh, the, the first thing we wanna make sure is that uh, our conviction in the name and the durability of growth is really, really high uh, in order to maintain a position in a, in a highly valued name. Uh, and the second thing is, is that we would think about it, portfolio construction, how much risk do we wanna take in a specific name and a given name um, but again, it all comes back to kind of the power of compounding and the power of, you know, free cash flow growth, driving intrinsic value growth in a stock over time. 
I'd, I'd right. also just add, and I think Greg, you handled, you answered that very well, but I'd also add that uh, typically when we do own some of the higher valuation names, and I'm, I'm thinking of one in diabetes in particular, where there's a new patient population that might not be factored into those consensus numbers that, that Greg mentioned. So we have a differentiated view on some of these higher valuation companies where we think there's either a new patient population and or um, in this case, a new reimbursement mechanism, which provides availability of their product to a larger TAM than, than maybe what's anticipated uh, in the current market or in the current consensus numbers. Interesting. Um, thanks for that, that additional explanation. That's very helpful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit, you, you talked about the durability of, of uh, free cash flow and, and, and the ability of, for these uh, firms to, to continue uh, to generate cash flow and narrow range of outcomes. Um, and if I look at your portfolio holdings, you do hold um, several of the, the very large technology names, names like Microsoft or Amazon. Um, with those uh, names particularly, where does the sort of the large number affect the law of large numbers where their ability to grow? Uh, these are already very large corporations. Um, how do you have conviction in that they're able to continue to grow just given where they are now? The largest of the large technology companies um, are growing. They're actually growing at a double digit rate, their, their cash flow growth rate, depending on the company, but um, Microsoft is, uh, Facebook is, Amazon is, they're able to somewhat print whatever margins they'd like. But um, these are companies that have so much competitive power that there's a true regulatory risk based on um, you know, their, their market structures. They also have the ability to, to um, use their balance sheets, which are in significant you know, tens of billions of dollars of net cash position to add on products or services or supplement growth. Um, so absent um, uh, material downturn and um, the economy or some sort of big regulatory shakeup that, that causes these companies to alter their operating environments, uh, they certainly should be able to continue the growth that they've seen. Now, they're, they're not all created equal, and they're acronyms that include uh, multiple companies, but we do try and take a look at them individually and try and make sure that um, we're not overly exposed to mega cap, specifically mega cap tech uh, in aggregate. And I would just add, you know, the businesses, despite high levels of growth and despite their sheer size, continue to grow at really high levels. And so Richard's point is a good one. These, these businesses often get lumped into an acronym. And, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think they all did the same thing. The businesses are actually very different despite having, you know, some segments that overlap. And, you know, I think if you were to walk through whether it's, Facebook and Google disrupting uh, the advertising market going from offline to online, 
or Amazon disrupting, you know, the retail market going from offline to online. We could go through the different businesses and talk about that disruption, but the size of the markets that these companies are disrupting is massive. And so even if you look at Amazon, who is, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in, in online retail today, their market share relative to you know the global retail market is still relatively small it still will allow them to grow you know maybe not at uh, the high levels that they've seen in these last couple quarters during the pandemic but certainly uh in the double digits in their core co commerce business for some period of time so they are big businesses but they are disrupting really really big markets and uh, that's what's allowed them to continue to grow at really high levels. And, you know, frankly, we think that probably continues uh, for the foreseeable future. Great. Um, you, you had mentioned, uh, Richard, that uh, you do keep an eye on how much mega cap tech you have within the portfolio. How do you approach portfolio construction generally? Um, and uh, do you use any sort of uh, software or is it um, how do you make ensure diversification and, and good uh, portfolio construction? We spend a, a lot of our time on portfolio construction and we try not to get over our skis in any particular sector. So um, kind of relative to the index, we don't typically take big sector weights and instead we're not trying to necessarily time a uh, preference for healthcare over industrials, over tech, over energy, over financials. Instead, we're trying to let the, the stock-specific nature of, of the names we like drive the portfolio performance. So uh, we, we have a bunch of proprietary risk tools and uh, Axioma is the backbone of, of one of them specifically that we use, which allows us to track you know, factor risks and just make sure that, that we're taking bets that are intended and that we can um, make sure that our highest conviction names are, are what's really driving the, the performance of the portfolio. But we have access on a daily basis, intraday to all types of risk factors. We can uh, enter trades and see potential implications to our risk factors. So whether, you know, it's medium-term momentum or volatility or market sensitivity or what have you, we know what buying a, a certain security we may be interested in does to the portfolio. And, and again, we're, we're just trying to prioritize and make sure um, that our highest conviction names are what's driving performance. So it's not a situation where we toggle the beta up and down or we toggle cash levels up and down. We stay fully invested and uh, we keep our, our beta around one and we keep the sector bands tight and we try and, and put basis points and, and put uh, our largest weights behind our highest conviction ideas. Makes sense. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the current market environment and uh, what you're seeing and, and the implications of the environment. Uh, it's certainly strange, <laughs> unusual. <laughs> Um, maybe to start with a general question, how has COVID um, affected your portfolio, either by the introduction of new themes or, or how you think about uh, some of the underlying businesses? Sure, at least at least for the 
uh, current market environment. It's a situation where low interest rates for potentially a long time and uh, a flood of liquidity and all kinds of support mechanisms at, at uh, the government level have, have provided a real safety net for uh, the, the market itself. And they're not permanent by any means, but they've certainly trying to serve as a, a bridge until um, the pandemic is at least less impactful on society than it is than it is today. Um, Greg, do you, do you want to hop in with maybe our newest theme and um, maybe can talk about some of the accelerants we've seen as a result of, of the pandemic for names that we own? Yeah, sure. So two points that I'd make. The first is we do have this thematic overlay in the portfolio. Uh, as Richard explained earlier, it really helps us build conviction in the durability of growth in the businesses that we own. Uh, we've seen the themes that we already had in the portfolio coming into the pandemic really accelerate. Um, and so that, you know, that could be e-commerce and payment processing where we own a number of names, the largest of which in the portfolio is PayPal. Um, it could be cloud infrastructure and software. Uh, again, a lot of these are kind of tech or digital oriented themes, but there's been a massive acceleration in adoption uh, of these technologies. We've had CEOs of a number of the businesses that we do own talk about, you know, an acceleration or a pull forward in demand of two to five years. And, you know, unlike some industries where you see a pull forward in inventory or pull, pull forward in demand, and it tends to be short lived, and then you come down the back end of it pretty aggressively, we really think Again, because of the size of a lot of these markets and the stage where, you know, where we are today in terms of, you know, digital payments, uh, touchless payments, for example, we have a really long runway. So first point is we've seen a real acceleration and a pull forward of demand that we think is durable and we think can grow kind of on the back of that pull forward. So that's the first impact that we've seen in the portfolio. And that's actually been very beneficial uh, to the portfolio and the returns of the, of the strategy uh, since the pandemic began. Uh, the second point I want to make is, is we have added a new theme to the portfolio. We call it viral effects. Um, this really touches on a lot of the, the lasting impacts uh, of the pandemic beyond the themes that existed in the portfolio previously. So, you know, we've seen drastic changes in behavior uh, in the workplace, drastic changes in behavior in terms of consumer purchasing preferences and patterns. Uh, some of these may be temporary, but what we've tried to do, uh, Richard and I both, and in, in concert with the analyst uh, pool at Putnam, is, is really try to think about what are the kind of lasting shifts that we've seen uh, from a medium to long-term standpoint. And so changes in consumer purchasing preferences where we own a company like Walmart, we've seen uh, big shifts in that area. That would fall into this viral effects bucket. Uh, certainly changes in human communication and workflows as it relates to school from home or work from home or just being able to do things remotely. There's obviously been huge benefits there for a number of businesses. And then another area where we see 
I think we see probably more of a lasting impact than maybe the market even does today is in diagnostic testing. Uh, we own a company, uh, Danaher, which is one of the largest positions in the portfolio. Uh, they have a, a large piece of their business tied to diagnostic testing. We own a much smaller business in the portfolio called Quidel. Uh, similarly, this is a company that's historically done flu tests. They now have COVID tests. Um, both, both companies have benefited massively in the short term here, but we think we think this is going to be around for a lot longer than than maybe the market still thinks. Diagnostic testing is going to be important, uh, and unless we have a vaccine that that eradicates the virus from the planet uh, tomorrow, we think you know well into 2021 this is going to be a big driver of growth and potentially even beyond that. So. Uh, again, we see in businesses like Danaher and Quidel, really durable growth driver that we think is going to persist probably for longer than the market thinks. Great. Um, that's that's interesting. And uh, the deviation of uh, where your thought thinking is as far as, again, the durability, the long-term nature of some of these changes that are brought by COVID, uh, very interesting. The other, of course, big, um, big change uh, that was touched on earlier was the government intervention and uh, ultra low interest rates, uh, clearly massive fiscal stimulus as well. Um, how do you how do you think about uh, those programs? Uh, how do they impact the valuation of your companies? Uh, and how do you think about the, the, those are not durable trends, clearly. Um, and how do you think about the, the fiscal stimulus, particularly, Andy, and the impact? Yeah, so I, I would start by saying our analysis is, is rooted in kind of a stock by stock bottom up uh, uh, approach. That said, these macro factors have been have been vitally important for valuations. You know, the, the fiscal measures have been vitally important in terms of keeping money in consumers' wallets uh, so that they can continue to spend in ways that they did. You know, the spending is obviously very different. A lot of it's online. You've got curbside pickup. Uh, the the mix of, of consumer spend has shifted dramatically away from travel and entertainment towards durables and uh, other elements of retail. So there's been some really interesting shifts there. Maybe some of that's permanent, but at some point that goes back to normal, to your point. That that piece of it may not be as durable. Um, but yeah, the, the macro the macro factors driving the market today are are pretty unique. Uh, you know, we've been in a low interest rate environment for a long time, uh, for the last several years, with uh, you know, barring the little blip that we saw maybe a year to two years ago. Um we think that despite rates being really low and at generational lows, they likely continue to stay low. Uh, we're in an environment where really since the financial crisis, growth has been scarce. And so you're right to your point, you know, the market has rewarded businesses that have been able to grow. Um, so we're, I would say we're very, very cognizant of the macro factors that are driving the market. Um, we do factor that into, particularly factor that into valuation and how we think about how, you know, the businesses that have benefited from a valuation standpoint should be sized within the portfolio. Um, 
and I'd say, you know, it's, it's, it's a factor that's front and center in our thinking every day. Um, but for, for the immediate future, we'd expect rates to remain low, growth to remain scarce, and a lot of the businesses that we own to, to benefit from that. Richard, I'll pass it to you if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, the, the only two additional points I'd make are that um, we explicitly take into account prior cycles and, and downside analysis before we we purchase the securities. So it's nice that there's fiscal stimulus available and that checks are being sent out and that certain industries are being backstopped. But um, the names we own and the different scenarios that we forecast and analyze don't necessarily need it for these companies to be successful. Um, and so it's it's certainly buoyed or has, has um, you know, backstopped the market for the time being, but we believe that the companies we own uh, don't need some of the stimulus that's uh, that's occurring in order to grow their their cash flows at a double digit rate and be successful in their operating environments. That's that's actually the the main point that I would I'd highlight. Thanks so much for that. I, I really appreciate uh, the insights. Um, we always conclude these podcasts by getting a uh, series of recommendations from you. Um, so, uh, and I'd, I'd love uh, both of you to chime in on, on some of these, uh, but uh, maybe I'll start with getting some of your favorite books. They can be investment related, fiction, nonfiction, whatever you'd like. Sure. The, I'll, I'll mention one that, that I just finished that uh, I, I thought was highly entertaining and uh, certainly kept my interest in um, it's super interesting, and it's it's a book, uh, but about Phil Knight by Phil Knight about uh, Nike and the the beginnings of um, kind of the struggle to get the business up and running, and how uh, the different twists and turns, and uh, it's it's a great narrative, and uh, I'd certainly recommend that one for anyone looking uh, to learn how Nike got started. And that shoe dog, is that right? Uh, shoe dog, yes. Yeah, great. And I'd add one, uh, not yet, not quite finished with it, but in the midst of reading uh, Range by David Epstein, which is pretty interesting. It, uh, the, the premise of the book is basically looking at, at uh, why generalists do well in kind of a specialized world and in comparing you know, generalist type training to specialized type training, different environments in which uh, people perform better. And it's, it's interesting. There's, there's really, there's a lot of conversation in the book about different sports or athletes, uh, different scholars through time. Uh, but it actually is pretty applicable to, to how you approach markets and how to think about investing, um, you know, from a generalist perspective versus, thinking about investing from a highly specialized, you know, kind of sector or industry type perspective. Uh, but I've found it to be a pretty good book so far. Great. I'll have to pick that up. Sounds very interesting. Um, how about, I'm not sure if uh, either one of you listen to podcasts, but if you do, uh, what are some of your favorite podcasts? Oh, I'll, I'll throw one in there that kind of echoes uh, what 
what Richard said a minute ago, but uh, I love listening to How I Built This, uh, which is a podcast with uh, Guy Raz. And um, I, it's it's a bunch of founder stories, effectively. So he interviews, he interviews, you've probably heard of it, but he interviews founders uh, of a a bunch of different businesses. At this point, the library is actually pretty long. And uh, there are a number of businesses that we own in the, in the strategy, uh, you know, the founder of, of Lululemon uh, is in there in one of the episodes that comes to mind, but it's, it's a pretty cool perspective on, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of founders. Uh, you know, I think we, we think a lot about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg founding Facebook at a young age, the first company he tried to build, becoming wildly successful. And the truth is, for most of these entrepreneurs who've built really successful businesses, in a lot of cases, it wasn't their first crack at it. And so it's really interesting to hear kind of the failure number one, failure number two, failure number three, before something really catching yeah. on and becoming successful. So I, I love listening to those. Um, it's a great Great podcast. Great. I, I like that one a lot as well. I, I would second that one. Invest with the best is another good one, but uh, how yeah. I built it is a, is a great, is a great one. Perfect. Uh, and we're, uh, we're into the, well into the summer months. Um, usually that has been vacation season for, uh, for people in North America uh, this year, a little bit less so probably, uh, but <laughs> what would be some of your favorite road trip destinations, uh, places that you can actually get to this year? Uh, well, I'll go uh, first. This is Greg. I, yeah. I, yeah, I live, I live in Boston. I've got a couple spots that are really easy to drive to from Boston. Uh, I'm a really big fan of, of Buzzards Bay in the South coast of Massachusetts into Rhode Island, uh, towns like Westport and little Compton, beautiful place beautiful places and then uh a much longer road trip uh but you can't you can do it uh is to drive down to the charleston area in south carolina and you don't get to benefit from the restaurants and all the entertainment down there uh this summer like you normally would but it's still uh, a beautiful beautiful place there there are advantages to going first answering these questions i would uh (laughs) those are are great ones road trips Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being generous with your time. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we really appreciate all the effort that you put into uh, managing uh, the McKenzie Fund. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having us, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 